This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers segment. And in the past, we featured the life of Fred Smith, building FedEx from nothing into, well, something. And Bernie Marcus, a kind supporter of this show, and he and a couple of his friends built Home Depot from scratch and wrote a book called Built from Scratch. And we love entrepreneur stories. We even did Mario Andretti, an hour on him and his life, because my goodness, what a life it was. And it was an entrepreneur's story because he owned a, a racing car uh, company, ultimately, and employed a lot of people. And joining us today, we love to do small businesses, mid-sized businesses. It's quite a story. Joining us today is Don Lafriti. We're going to start from the beginning. Don owns now 77 restaurants in Arizona, Arkansas, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas. But she grew up in humble beginnings And Dawn, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. Now, before we get into the business story, Dawn, we always start, no matter who we talk to here on this show, with the the childhood, the parents, the location, uh, the early life. uh, And talk talk to us about your, your parents and where you grew up and the circumstances under which you grew up. So I grew up in uh, Orange County, California, and uh, my father was not much of a provider. My mother always was providing for the family. My father just wasn't uh, the perfect human being. So my mom worked long hours to feed us, put a roof over our head. But I started working at a very young age, babysitting, taking odd jobs, anything I could to make a few bucks. And I always had the pressure um, as a child as to wondering if the bills were going to be paid, if there was enough food on the table, if we were going to make ends meet. And I remember thinking as a, as a young girl, you know, one day I just want to own my own company so I don't have to worry about this. I want to be in charge of my own destiny. So I always knew that working was something I was going to have to do. I wasn't going to get married and have babies and have a husband. I was going to work and I was going to make my way in the world. And so when I turned 16... I got a job uh, at Taco Bell, right around the corner where I could walk, and I saved up enough money to get a car so that I could get a job at Denny's. And at the time, my mother was a district manager for Denny's, and I just felt that it would be a great stepping stone for me. I could waitress. I could earn tips. So that's what I did. I got a job. I was a hostess. I saw that waitresses were making a lot more money. And I begged and I begged and I begged to be a waitress. And I was pretty young. I was 16 and a half at the time. And the manager would say to me, no, we need you as a hostess. You're such a great hostess. We can't make you a waitress. And I just pressed on him until he finally gave me the chance. And I became the best waitress he had had. I made a lot of money in tips. I saved them all uh, in hopes of buying my own business one day, of which I didn't know at the time what it would be. And back in the early 80s, uh, Denny's bought a chain of restaurants called Hobo Joe's and Colony Kitchens. And there was one restaurant in Globe, Arizona. It was a tiny little mining town about 80 miles east of Phoenix. Um, And they had a restaurant there that they didn't want to convert to a Denny's. And a manager friend of mine and I, we got wind of this store, and we ended up buying it off of very little savings credit cards. We took every penny we could off credit cards. We went and we applied 5000 here, 5000 there, bought our first restaurant off credit cards, did well with it. And then in 1984, oil went bust in West Texas. 
and Denny's Corporate called and said, we have four dog stores. Would you like to take a shot at them? <laughs> and that was really, I think, the big moment in, you know, realizing, you know, I'm, I'm going to be my, my own business owner. I, I was, you know, with the first restaurant in Arizona, but there was something bigger about this. This was I was moving my life. Um, this was a, this was four restaurants at once, yep. and it, it was a very exciting time. Although you take a girl from Orange County, California, and you put her in Midland, Texas, <laughs> and there's a little bit of a culture shock and a huge learning curve. Oh my goodness! And I know Midland well. I've been there many times. It's uh, it's the heart of the oil patch. It's the Permian Basin, and right now they've got some of the biggest oil finds in world history there. But when gas prices go down. Oh, my goodness. Right. So it's feast or famine. It is feast or famine. Even the most rambunctious multimillionaire oil man doesn't look like the same man uh, when oil prices are down, Don. Well, it's it really something. True. It's so true. And it, even to this day, you know, I've, I've uh, been in West Texas for 30 years now. When oil's booming, I can't even get somebody to wash my windows because... They're working the oil fields or mow my grass. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting city how you do business there, and you either have tons and tons of business and not enough help, or tons of help and not enough business. Right. And and the great thing about starting out in West Texas is I learned how to survive. Oh my goodness, Don! Everyone should start. It's the equivalent in West Texas because it's the equivalent of uh, Paris Island. It's like boot camp for an entrepreneur. You know, it really is. And I remember being young. I was I was very young when I started out there, and I would work seventeen hours a day just to be able to make ends meet. And it really taught me a lot. And, and the biggest thing it taught me is there's always going to be a rainy day. You know, there's always going to be a time when sales aren't where they should be or when costs are higher than they should be. And it really prepped me for what was to come later down in my career. Well, let's hold that thought. And when we come back on the other side, I'm going to back up just a little bit. I want to ask about what you learned working at such a young age. Very often on this show, one of the recurring themes is why we aren't having our kids working younger. So many kids aren't learning. They're learning a lot of things, but they're not necessarily learning how to put in a hard day's work. Well, I have a lot to say about that. I so am sure you, Don. I am sure you do owning 77 restaurants. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our American Dreamer segment. We love doing these because, well, what you heard from Don was what you hear from all these folks. I, I just want to be my own boss. I want to take destiny in my own hands. And if you remember Bernie Marcus, his mother, well, she had that uh, arthritis. She couldn't move. As he said, my father just wasn't a very good provider. Sounded exactly like Don's circumstance. Lived in Newark, New Jersey, in a tough neighborhood. And yet at 50, started Home Depot. And that is the American dream. And that's why we love doing this American Dreamer series. This is, again, Lee Habib. This is our American story, the story of Don LaFrida. And her remarkable rise to own 77 restaurants in this great country. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories. Our American Dreamer series continues with Don LaFrieda. And Don, I wanted to just backtrack a second during the break. We were just commenting about working early, starting work at a young age. And I actually think it was an advantage for you that you started young. And I don't know that any of this would have been possible had you not started working at a young age and not had to face tough circumstances. Talk a little bit about how that might have been an opportunity for you while other people might have seen it as bad luck. Well, you know, I knew I didn't have some of the options that other people had. And so, as I said to you earlier, I knew I was going to have to work. So if I wanted a car, I was going to have to work to get the car. If I wanted new clothing, if I wanted to go out to eat, anything I really wanted at that age, I had to work for. I had to work really starting much younger than 16 just to get some of the things that I might have personally wanted. So going out and getting a job was very empowering for me. I was finally in control of really my own money, my own destiny, what I could have, what I couldn't have, instead of someone always saying, well, we can't afford that. Or, you know, living in a household with a a parent that doesn't work and only one parent, you know, providing for three children, it was very rough times. And, you know, we all survived. And I know people have harder luck stories than I do. But, I started, as I said, working at the age of 10 and 11 to make money to buy a new dress for Easter. And so what I learned is money could buy me things. It could buy me control of my life. It could let me be in charge of where I wanted to go. And where I wanted to go was to the top. And I had hoped to go to college, and that was my wish, and I started out there, and I didn't quite make it. So I knew I just had to work extra hard to to have the things I wanted to have in life and to have a career. And we learn so often that the entrepreneurs that we've been talking to, so many of them either drop out of college, don't ever get to college. Uh, we, when we did Steve Jobs for the hour, his speech at Stanford was about him dropping out at Reed College, which he right. did. And then he dropped back in and took a calligraphy course, but only just auditing it. And that calligraphy course set in motion a way of thinking about space and art and beauty And he was advising these kids, look, God bless that you went to Stanford, but lots of great things happen without college. And let's talk about the flip side of this, Dawn, work and young people. Uh, You hire a lot of young people. We're going to continue with your story, but you hire a lot of young people. Talk about the work ethic now and what you're bumping up against as you go to hire people. What's the pool of workers now today like? What was oh it like gosh. 20 years ago? Oh, my gosh. It's it's just worlds different. So, And, and I'm going to tell you, I'm the mother of uh, 13-year-old twin sons, and, and I want to give them everything that I didn't have. But in thinking that, I also have to think about what we're faced with today, and, and it's my generation that it has caused what I think is some of the problem within the workforce because times are a little different. We want to give our kids better. We don't necessarily make them rush out and get a job at 16. We buy them cars. We buy them cell phones. uh, We want them to be in sports. We want them to be focusing on their homework. Well, there's really not a lot of time to go get a job. Well, for me, I didn't have a choice. I had to get a job. And I think that's part of the problem today. A, there's not enough workforce. But also, when I look back to when I bought my first restaurant, the competition was very different. I mean, there was Denny's. There were maybe a couple of other restaurants. Now there's 50 yep. in a two- or three-mile radius, all begging for the same customer and the same employee. 
we all need to staff our restaurants and we all need customers, but all of it gets a little piece of your pie. So here's what happens. When I was a server, I wouldn't even dream of calling in sick and definitely not no call, no show. Well, today, well, you know, I want to go to a concert or, you know, I'm going to go away for the weekend. I'll just not show up because I can get a job across the street with no problem because everybody's hiring. And I think that's a large part of the problem. Because you you don't you don't have the longevity. You don't you, you know you can get a job anywhere, so I don't think you're as dedicated. Yep. Yep. I think that's a huge 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 problem today in addition to kids don't have to work as hard. And so when we're building in neighborhoods that are more up and coming and prominent the kids aren't having to work. Yeah, you know, when I was young, and I hate doing the back-in-the-day stuff because we all sound so old and mean that way, but I do think there's something here. You know, I just remember all the kids I knew. If we went to do something, we weren't allowed to quit. I mean, I couldn't go back to my dad when I was working at Roy Rogers, my first job, and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I couldn't say those words to him. They wouldn't have been greeted with kindness I would have had severe consequences, and I couldn't think of not working for a job for at least a year, given it the old college try, and I better have found a different job before I talked to Dad about that job. Well, and you know what the hard part about that is for employers is we, we invest money in your training. Yep. And it becomes very costly. And I have a friend of mine who runs a company, and, he, and this was a few years back before things got really bad. He says, you know, I was interviewing someone for a job, and it was more like they were in, interviewing me. Uh, how many days off do I get? How many sick days do I get? How many times a year do I get a review? When do I get my raises? How many times can I call in sick? You know, I mean, it's like you're being interviewed instead of interviewing the employee. And I don't know if it's just kind of where we've evolved as a society. But I do think things need to change a little to be more balanced. And I think it's really good for kids to work. I think it gives them a sense of accomplishment. It gives them a purpose, something to look forward to, something to dream about. You know, I I always want to give things to my children, but I remember what it was like growing up to be dreaming of getting a bicycle or, you know, a car or even my first restaurant. And when you don't have those kind of dreams, I think you're missing out because you're not building on that. Yeah, it's so true. And we, we've spent some time on that Stanford study where they gave kids rewards, bigger rewards for certain delayed gratification, even bigger rewards. And it's turning out on a longitudinal study that the single most important, important characteristic for success is the ability to delay gratification. And that's the only way a dream can ever come true, Don, is if you, you stick at it. And you stay at it. And by the way, I hate blaming the kids for this kind of stuff because in the end, it's the adults that created this mess, not the kids. you know, it it, it is. And again, I wouldn't have been in the situation I was in had I not been forced to by my circumstances. I had to work. You had no choice. I had no choice. And and you know what? I'm grateful for every moment of it. I don't regret it. It put me on my journey. And um, I've had the most wonderful life and career with Denny's. You know, there's this one, there's a note here, and we have a bunch of quotes from you, and I know nothing makes people cringe in hearing their own quotes, but you, from one particular story about you, you said, I knew from a very young age that I would be self-employed. As a young girl, I recall sitting with my mother and saying to her, one day, I'm going to own my own company and make a lot of money. And she said to me, of course you are. 
Talk about that positive reinforcement of your mom. Some moms would have said, there's no way that's going to happen, sweetheart. Well, you know, I can't even begin to tell you how powerful that is. My mom's given me two very powerful things, and that is one of them. And because I thought my whole life, well, every time I felt the stumbling block, I didn't let it get me down. Of course I'm going to own my own company. Of course I'm going to be successful. I mean, I just I just believed that. If my mom believed in me, you know, of course you're going to do that. My mom didn't say, well, you know, don't set your dreams too big or don't aim too high. She just said, of course you are. So all along my path, I always thought, well, of course I am. Yep. I and, always thought positive about it. And those words, and we always tell people who are listening, your words matter to the people you're telling them to. We did an hour on Vince Lombardi, and we had Jerry Kramer. We had a clip from Jerry Kramer, the great All-American and All-Pro guard. And, and Lombardi was tough on Kramer. And Kramer was wondering whether he had it in him to be a pro. But he said, but one day, Coach came in the locker room, and he said, Kramer, you know why I'm so hard on you? Because you're going to be the best damn player of all time. You've got it in you. And he said, from that day forward, from that day forward, I was a changed man. And by the way, we heard this from him, Don, like 30 years after that incident. But he said it was the turning point in his life that someone believed in him that much. Well, I think, I think, I think we all have something like that. And as I mentioned to you, I have a, a second thing my mother did with me, and it is what propelled me, I think, to, to really go forward. And I, when I was buying my first restaurant, I was 23 years old, and I was a little nervous. And I thought, wow, man, there's, there's 30 people depending upon me for a job. What if, you know, what if I can't do it? What if I fail? What if, what if something goes wrong? And my mom looked at me and she says, so you start over at 26. (laughs) And I thought to myself, yeah, if I can't do it, I just start over and I keep trying. Yep. Well, that's fantastic. And and bless her heart for doing that for you, Don. And when we come back, we're going to pick up where we left off on growing this business. Because my goodness, getting those new restaurants, what a challenge for you. When we come back, the story of Don LaFrieda and the American Dreamer series that we love doing here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. American Stories, and we're talking with Don LaFrieda. It's our American Dreamers segment, and let's talk a little bit more about one thing that happened when you were young that mattered as you got older. While still working at Denny's, Don, you took a second job selling accounting software and learned about computers and running a business. And and so now you walk into this world of now having to manage four new stores, the ups, the downs, keeping a certain level of workforce in place dealing with the rainy days, dealing with the surfeit of those great times and tucking some away. What part did knowing about accounting and bumping up against that accounting software play in your development? Oh, it's such a huge part. Um, Well, first off, I learned about computers. And when I was going to school, they didn't teach us that. So I got that background. But I learned about how to run a small business 
when you work for a small company, you wear a lot of different hats. So I got to understand payroll, accounts payable, scheduling, billing, sales, um, a lot of different things, even just how to handle an influx of incoming mail, just a whole wide variety of um, office skills that I never had working in a restaurant. And, and I learned how to develop spreadsheets, which became instrumental in me doing forecasting and budgeting and um, helping me to accomplish a lot more in a shorter amount of time because I was working in a restaurant. I was doing all the accounting for our company. So there was there was a lot to do, and I felt very ready for it, having spent the time working in that accounting firm. And the accounting firm, or the, the uh, small software firm that I worked for, they sold accounting software to CPAs and lawyers. So when you, when you have to learn the software, you're learning about debits and credits and where things get posted and profit and loss statements. And I also was, you know, learning about legal software for lawyers. So I got to just learn a ton of things that I think gave me an advantage over um, other other franchisees or small business owners who who maybe didn't have that background. Yeah, and I always pity the person who doesn't understand cash flow too. And I'm Lebanese, so it's sort of drilled into our heads from birth. Um, we're trading people, Lebanese people, and so we know what cash flow means. We heard about it as kids, always saving enough for a rainy day, even more. Um, and that cash is king in a business because if you run out of it, boy, you're going to pay hard for it. Cash is king. And, you know, when you buy your business, um, you get your money, you buy your restaurant. Well, they don't tell you when you're 23 that, well, there's uh, deposits on every electric account you have and every water account and every gas account and every sales tax account. And there's things that you don't anticipate that you think, oh, I'm buying my restaurant and I'm paying this for it. Then you walk in the door and you need to come up with an extra $100,000 or whatever the magic number is for all the deposits. And you go, oh, my gosh, take a deep breath. What am I going to do next? You bet. And so now you've got the stores in West Texas. How do you go from there and learning all the things you did in that really almost a battlefield? Because And not that Midland's a battlefield, but just the ups and downs we were talking about. Uh, what were the next steps to getting to where you are today? How did you do that, Dawn? So I had I had a business partner back then, and um, we were living in West Texas, and I was incredibly homesick. And the next biggest city to where I was living, I was living outside of Midland in a town called San Angelo because it had a lake and I missed the beach. And uh, San Antonio was the next biggest city, and so I finally convinced Denny's to sell us a store in uh, – in San Antonio, bought one store there, ended up uh, converting a couple more. So it, oh, I had maybe eight or so at the time. I ended up very soon after there buying out my business partner, and then I just went on a development craze and decided that I wanted to buy out other franchisees. I wanted to look at opportunities within Denny's. I wanted to build from the ground up. I wanted to move into some other markets. I left no stone unturned. I just had a real hunger for growth. And I think I'd had it when I was with my prior business partner. But, you know, when two people have to make a decision and one is a bigger risk taker than the other, 
um, you're not always aligned. And I always wanted to grow and develop, I think, at a much deeper level than she did. Yeah, you know, it was interesting when we were doing Bernie Marcus's story. Bernie actually admitted that he sometimes wanted to grow too fast. And then if it hadn't been for Arthur, his, his gas pedal was always all the way down. And so he said, thank goodness Arthur periodically slowed me down. In this case, though, it sounds like it, you were really getting held back. Arthur didn't hold Bernie well, back. I, I, was, I, I was being held back because, you know, people have different egos and different, um, different things that are important to them at different times in their life. And I, I was just ready to develop and, and, and to grow. And I, I didn't have a specific number in mind, but I just knew I wanted to develop more restaurants. And I made mistakes along the way. I'm not going to say I didn't. And there's things that you have no control over that you don't foresee in the economy, a 9-11, a financial crisis, a, a market that struggles. I mean, there's things that happen, and you, you're not always prepped for it. But, again, I was, you know, the captain of my own destiny, and so whatever I laid out for myself, I was going to fix if I created a problem. And I think in the end it, it made me stronger because when I did get myself into a pickle in a market, I said, how am I going to get myself out? Well, I'm going to upgrade my stores. I'm going to buy more stores. I'm going to close these stores. I'm, you know, I, I would set out a strategy for how I was going to tackle whatever situation came my way. And by the way, it was interesting earlier you had said you convinced Denny's. I did. Uh, and and uh, it sounded to me like you were not just going to convince them. You were going to just wear them down. Well, uh, that's, yeah. So I would call frequently, um, frequently, please sell us a store in San Antonio. And, and I got no for a long time, and they finally caved in, and, and we got to buy one. And this, this one in particular particular store I had wanted, and they wouldn't sell it, and they wouldn't sell it. But 25 years later, Lee, they sold it to me. So I waited 25 <laughs> years for that store, but I finally got it. Well, that's perseverance, Dawn. And, and by the way, we know that that's one of the major attributes to being an entrepreneur or to being really good at anything. You just got to stick to it. It doesn't come overnight. And talk about just a little bit here, and we're going to come back on the other side and talk about this too. Uh, I often think that sometimes the wage gap between men and women yeah, there's sexism, there's no doubt, and it's, it's rampant. But I also think that the women I've met, who, when they come to me and say, well, how do I go get a, way, a raise? And I go, you got to go fight for one. And they go, no, I don't, I don't I, you know, I'm just not comfortable doing that. And then, of course, the, the, the male boss, well, he's never going to lean down and give that woman the raise. And do you think there, that a part of the wage gap has to do with women not being trained from the ground up. And this is sexist, too. I mean, the, the, you know, human beings are taught to fight for things, and we're teaching our boys to fight, but we're not teaching our girls to fight for a raise. Do you find that happens as a boss? Uh, no, but I'm in a different situation because I am a female, and I pay all my people in my company based upon performance, experience, job code. So we don't discriminate between gender. Right. But we're in a in the hospitality industry, which is uh, it's not like being an executive or being in higher management where you're competing with men. I mean we have we actually have a higher percentage of women employees by a few percent than we do men, but we pay them fairly based upon what market they're working in, uh, what volume of restaurant they're managing, you know, various criteria. So we don't, like I said, discriminate between male and female. However, I have several friends who 
have come to me over the years that when they talk to me about their careers and what they're making, I have coached them and said, you know, unless you go in and say this is unacceptable. Now, I don't know what their male counterparts are making, but I know as a female what they were being paid was yep. below what, what they should have. And and I can tell you quite honestly, uh, one in particular p- person I coached got a $10,000 raise immediately and then went on to propel higher. Well, and that's great that you did that. And I think we all need to coach everyone that, you know, you just got to fight for what you believe in. And it doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what, what sexual orientation you are. Fight. Fight. And you'll have a much better chance of getting what you want. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamer series with Don LaFrieda. More after these messages. our American stories. We love asking people what their favorite music was, especially when they were young. And thus we come in with Barry Manilow, somebody that Don loved. And it looks like you did make it, Don. But then again, something tells me at 77 restaurants, you're not finished. Well, no, and it's already 78, so uh-huh. um, definitely not finished, even though you just outed me as a fan which I totally am. So thank you for that song, because I love him, and I've gotten to meet him twice, and it's been, um, it was really great to get to meet somebody that you enjoyed so much growing up. That is terrific. And let's talk about that. You're, you're, you're at 78 restaurants and going strong. What's your biggest problem uh, as it relates to running your business now, and maybe even two? Uh, hands down, staffing. Finding enough employees. The, I've passed on restaurants because I couldn't find enough help. And the last thing you want to do is build a restaurant and not be able to give great service. And I think that is my single biggest challenge today. I mean, we have a lot of other issues that are out there. Um, there's things we have control of and things we don't have control of. And this is just something that over the course of the last 10 years has just gotten horrific to deal with. And what are the principal problems within that? Could you break some of that down? Well, I think as we discussed earlier, everybody is hiring. Right. And I also think there's a fair amount of the population that doesn't have to work that when we were growing up, we were working at 16, 17, 18, 20, 22. There's a whole segment of kids, young adults, going to college, not having to work. Um, there's a lot of factors, and there are a lot more jobs. And so, so what, do you, what do you do about that, Don? I mean, and, and what do you do to retain the people that you currently have? Well, that, that's really the key, but even, even when you do your best, to retain them, that doesn't always that doesn't always work because people have different agendas. There's a lot of people that just want to earn a paycheck for a short amount of time to, oh, maybe get their down payment on their apartment and move on. I don't know. There's not the longevity that I saw growing up. There's not the commitment to your employer, to your job, to your customer. 
So, for instance, and and I don't want to generalize or say that everybody is like this, but, you know, we have more drugs in society than we had before. And I will call in people. I'll interview them. I will say, you know, can you pass a background check? Can you pass a drug test? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So we hire them because we need bodies. We need to get people in training. And then many, many, many times they fail the drug test. So I think that's something that has plagued uh, our industry. Yep. For a long time. And by the way, Dawn, it's not just your industry. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff put out a report two years ago that said 75% of American males don't qualify to enter the military because of felonies, an inability to simply pass the basic physical and or test, and drug tests. So it's not just you that's facing that particular problem, particularly with males, but they even said that it was a growing factor with the females, too. Yeah, oh, it's a, pro- it's a problem, and I, I believe that dilutes the workforce for us. I think every new building on every new corner dilutes the workforce. I think kids that don't have to work, um, and, and I'm happy for them, uh, dilutes the workforce. It, it doesn't leave us a lot to choose from. In, in, in the olden days, huh, back when I was young, you had to, I had to wait in line six months for my job at Denny's. Today you run an ad, and you... You might get somebody that says they'll come in for an interview, and you you got to hope that they show because a lot of times they'll schedule an interview and not even show. Yeah, that's not a good way to, 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 to make an impression on your future boss. Well, Dawn. you know, it's not. But, again, they know that tomorrow there's a help wanted sign on every corner. It's so, it's so true. How many people do you employ right now, Close Dawn? to 3,000. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. It's a lot, and in the, and in the restaurant industry, it has high turnover with servers and cooks, and so we really end up turning about 7,500 in a year. Oh, just keeping track of that has it's, got to be something. It's a lot. I'm, I'm so grateful I have wonderful people to help me do all that. And when, what you do know, you... When, you, when you collect them along the way, a few each year, <laughs> yep. you, know, you kind of pace yourself and, and you grow into it. That's so true. And what do you do for your own work-life balance, Dawn? What do you and your partner do? And uh, just talk to us a bit about that. Uh, You know, our big thing is dining out, traveling, theater, concerts, um, and attending an awful lot of basketball games. Good for you. That that, that comes with 13-year-old twin boys. Now, we, we did a special on Tim Duncan's retirement. Yeah, because what a remarkable human being! Right? And yeah, he's he's a he's a great guy. Uh, my kids were just recently at a birthday party, and uh, his children were at the same party, and uh, he was shooting free throws with my kids. They thought, you know, they'd gone to heaven. Well, yeah, I, I would have gone to heaven too. I, that'd be a dream of mine. Next time there's a ch- shot at that dawn, give us a buzz. I'll be in San Antonio in a New York minute. I was conceived in San Antonio at Lackland wow. Air Force Base, wow. and I was born at Sampson Air Force Base in Syracuse. So I, I, mean, I tracked so it back. Been around. Yeah, been I, around. I figured it out. Well, um, I think Tim Duncan is just a phenomenal athlete, a phenomenal human being, gives back to the community, has the right spirit about the sport, about community, about just everything. He's a, a great individual. Well, I love the way he retired. He didn't have one of these Kobe Bryant, you know, and this is no slam on Kobe. I love Kobe too. Everyone's different. But he just wrote a little note saying, I'm not playing anymore. And they had to like almost pull him into like just a, a goodbye dinner. 
um, because he just he's just such a humble guy, the way he played and you know the way he lives. It's not about Timmy Duncan. No, he's very humble and he always gives credit to others and lets, lets everybody be part of the game, even yeah. if he can make the shot. You bet. And, and Don, I had to tell you a quick story because I was doing a, a, some poll and dial testing uh, for, uh, for Frank Luntz, who was poll and dial testing minimum wage and the, the minimum wage issue, which I'll ask you about in a second. Um, but I said, look, I, I said, Frank, let me just tell a story to this group of folks. And it was half Republican, half Democrat. And all I did was come in and tell a very simple story. I told your story. And I said that a minimum wage job is an entry-level job to a future and a life mm-hmm. where you learn about work and you learn about the dignity of work. And then pretty soon you can save enough money to get a, uh, get a store of your own and then maybe get a couple more. And this is the story of franchising in America, Don. It's amazing that 20% of the American workforce works under this, this idea called franchising. And by the way, you've made a full bet on Denny's. Most people diversify their portfolio as they start to grow. But you said, no, I'm, I'm, a, Denny's, I'm right. a Denny's girl. That's that. Talk yeah. about that. Talk about this franchising world and the minimum wage, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So uh, I, I do get offers to, um, to diversify pr- probably every day. Every restaurant concept, uh, any kind of franchising opportunity out there. But I've been very successful with Denny's. I have a fleet of restaurants that I understand the brand inside and out. I know how to troubleshoot the problems. I, I, you know, I know it and I understand it and I love it. And I have a lot of friends I've known who who they've done other concepts, and it, it detracts from what they have that is really making them live well. Yeah. There, there are some that do really great in other concepts, but I just never wanted to take my focus off Denny's. I just thought, you know what, I'm set, I'm set up to grow. My team knows Denny's. We can just take this and we can go. And, and people often ask me also, well, why don't you start your own restaurant? Why don't you do your own concept? You could, you know, wouldn't have to pay all those royalties and advertising fees. And I said, yeah, you know, you're right about that, but maybe I'd only have 10 restaurants because I'd have to be thinking about the decor and the sign and the menu and the recipes and the uniforms and what's my building going to look like and architects. And, you know, with franchising, you can just develop at a faster pace because a lot of that's done for you in the fees that you pay. And, And you get a proven concept. If I hang the name Dawn's up, who knows how many people will come? There's 97% brand awareness of a Denny's sign, and, and I think that's powerful. And um, we serve everybody, and, and I like that. I, er, anybody can go to Denny's. It's not you, – you can be rich, you can be poor. There's something there for everybody, and I like that about my brand. Yep, it's so true. And then you get to focus on operations and execution and do what you know best, and these big national branders are – are coming in there and they have the leverage to do what they do. And it's been such a terrific model. I think it's created more wealth for the ordinary American. I think, I think it's fantastic. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've been happy having one brand. And, you know, I, I sometimes I say, well, how many restaurants does one girl need? And, well, as many as, you know, I can possibly get. <laughs> but not at a cost of your quality of life. And, do you want to go learn something new? Do you want to take time away from your existing operation to go pay attention to another brand? And I just didn't want to do that. 
Well, you and your partner, it sounds like, have a great life. And my goodness, you don't want to miss a Spurs game because you have another brand. That would be the end for me, Dawn. Right, or a Barry Manilow concert. Or a Barry Manilow concert. Well, Dawn, thanks so much for joining us for the hour. Dawn LaFrida, a part of our American Dreamers story, started with nothing as a young kid, started working at the age of 10, and now owns 77 Denny's restaurants and employs 3,000 people. Thanks so much, Dawn, for joining us. Great to be here. Appreciate the hour you gave me. You betcha. And you can hear all of what we do at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today, we get into the heart of the story of one of America's greatest storytellers. A lot of people don't know much about Mark Twain beyond the fact that their high school teachers compelled them to read The Adventures of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. But few of us know the story of how Mark Twain squandered away all of his money through a series of bad investments, then how he would dig himself out of debt. Today, we have the author of the book, Chasing the Last Laugh. Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour, and it's by author Richard Zacks, who is a best-selling New York Times author, author of The Pirate Hunter, among many others. And thanks for joining us today, Richard. Uh, Great to be here. You bet. And, you know, I mentioned that uh, folks compelled us to read Mark Twain, and of all the things that we read that we were forced to read, this is one of the things most of us actually understood and loved. Before we even begin with the book, what is it about Mark Twain that you think connected to so many generations of readers? I think it's his humor and his, his uh, kind of child, childlike wonder and uh, mixed with cynicism. I mean, he did so many things. His range as a writer is about the most extreme you can imagine. To, ma- to make fun of religion and then to uh, celebrate uh, a runaway slave. To I mean, his... It just boggles my mind. The more I read, the more I realized uh, how far he'd go in different directions and how human he was. I mean, how he, he was able to pinpoint, you know, human emotions about, about guilt and acceptance and generosity and greed. And, you know, it's kind of, you, you, if you paraphrase a Mark Twain story, it, it just kind of sits there and, and you feel like an idiot. And then you read it and you realize oh, my God, the expressions that he came up with and the way he said it, and, and it, it just feels, frankly, so American. Yeah, and you know, Mark Twain's books can't be pitched. I mean, if you were to pitch his book, <laughs> right. it would not end well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I was sort of surprised by that because, uh, you know, uh, we'll get to it later, but he, he winds up telling about 30 of his best stories during this Round the World comedy tour. And so occasionally I would just try out on Friends, just paraphrasing, what the thing was about and you know i might say it's uh, oh he stole a watermelon and the watermelon was green and he tried to make the uh, the farmer take it back and it just it sounds idiotic yeah. you know it just doesn't kind of 
you know, but when he tells it, it's just the most amazing story. Or the jumping frog. I mean, when you, you know, I don't want to blow any punchlines, but but a lot of these, it, a lot of it's in the telling, and he's just a master. Well, in fact, we're doing this summer. We're going to send a correspondent out for that frog jumping contest out in Calaveras County because Twain just understood the American psyche. He was like a almost a Tocqueville type character. He understood the heartbeat of America and made us laugh about ourselves. Well, what I think is great, since you did bring up the jumping frog, um, it's kind of a perfect segue, because people didn't realize about the private Mark Twain. The private Mark Twain, I mean, that was the first story that put him on the map. That was the one that made the National Magazine. That's the one that got him his first book deal. And he understood gambling because he was an inveterate gambler. He was (laughs) just so addicted to risk. And, you know, People, people write up the Mark Twain, and they talk about literary this and that and, you know, uh, religion and King Leopold and all those other things. But this man loved to gamble, and he loved to gamble on pool, and he loved to play poker, and he would bet on things. And, and that's kind of what leads into my whole story, because this side of his personality made him want to gamble on making huge amounts of money. Yeah, and, indeed. And by the way, gambling, for, for those of us who like it, and I love a great poker game. America loves a great poker game. <laughs> but what do we love? It's not just the risk, Richard. It's the camaraderie. It's the jokes. It's the tells. It's the games and the gamesmanship. It basically amplifies all of the things in life, takes us out of our boring lives, and it's almost a heightened reality that we wish we could live in more often. Yeah, I agree with you, because all of life is some kind of risk. I mean, you just cross the street and you're risking. You drive 75 instead of 45, you're risking. But what I love, I did a piece a long time ago about a a bookmaker named Bob the Man Martin, and he said, the greatest thrill in life is winning a bet. The second greatest thrill is losing one. <laughs> it's so true. You know what I mean? Like, people who don't gamble don't understand that. They think I'm just trying to, like, show off with some quote or something. But it's, you want action. I mean, I sometimes only bet, like, five bucks on a, on a football game, and then I can watch Northern Illinois play <laughs> Duquesne, and I care about that game. That's so true. You know? That is so, so true. And people just don't get that. And Twain, oh, God, he really got it. He was addicted. <laughs> yeah, and some people can get in trouble from gambling, and some people can just enjoy it. Well, the same with alcohol. And so yeah. it's like all things in the end. One or two more things. I mean, we're obviously spending some time on the book. But I want to just dig in a little bit more to Twain and his writing. Because he busted all conventions. Right. I mean, this was not a guy who used proper grammar. This wasn't a guy who the, the, the fancy pants in right. New York City would think, my goodness, this is the next Proust or this is our right. Proust. I mean, talk about Mark Twain as a writer and what conventions he just busted. Well, what I think is so amazing is, is people don't realize that for the first 60 years of his life, he was known as a funny travel writer. I mean, everyone wants to forget that, all the people that write the essays at the universities. you know, He was known for Innocence Abroad, which was a groundbreaking travel book that basically made fun of all the pretentious travelers to Europe. I mean, it is, it, it <laughs> so about, you know, break, oh man, I don't know if you've read it all recently, but it's, it's laugh out loud funny. I mean, after the first 30 pages, they're a little slow, and then after that, it just flies. But he does things like, he keeps torturing like the guides in Italy when they start getting all passionate about the statues, and Twain will say, is he dead yet? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Or like the boatmen uh, who are charging excessively to cross like the, the, the uh, Sea of Galilee. He says, um, uh, Twain says, now I know why Jesus learned to walk on water. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah. So I mean, true. Right. So he, he was groundbreaking. And he, he, I don't know if people realize, but he started by basically being a, a travel writer. And they, he did well enough. They sent him to what was then the Sandwich Islands, which was Hawaii. 
And he wrote, <laughs> his stuff is so irreverent. I mean, he basically makes cannibal jokes all over the place. I mean, he was kind of unpolished at the time. But um, he came back and gave these, these basically stand-up comedy, and he'll actually, he turns to the audience and says, does anyone have a baby I can use? You know, and they know it's a cannibal joke. You yep. Know? And, yep. I mean, so, yeah, he, he was great. And by the way, as is the case with so many things, the reason what you did when telling the story to others is great comedy is always about words falling next to other words. It's music, it's timing, it's so much more. When we come back, Richard Zacks, the book Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. More after these messages. American Stories. You're listening to Chris Stapleton's former band, The Steel Drivers. And as Americana as Americana gets. And nothing is more American than Mark Twain. The writing of Mark Twain. The life of Mark Twain, frankly. And we're talking to author Richard Zacks. His great new book, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. And while we were in the break, Richard, you had asked about just sharing one more story about, well... Share it with our audience I just where we left to off. Tell you, you know, he yes, he's he was known for comedy, and he was known, and he was known a little bit as a young adult writer. But he really wanted to be a literary author, and it's he wanted to be like Henry James and Edith Wharton on some level. He wanted all that praise, which just today, you know, kind of cracks us up because he got it all through Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. But he was actually trying to do i mean i think of it as kind of like john stewart doing that movie rosewater right it's a little a little bit of a slow movie it's a very you know praiseworthy endeavor that he was trying to do but it's like no matter how good you are at one thing you want to be something else and and the other part of him that wanted to be something else is he had grown up so poor he just wanted to be as rich as rockefeller he wanted to be rich as a vanderbilt which kind of leads into the whole rest of the story here. Indeed. And I, I find it particularly with comics, who at one point or another just want to be taken seriously. Right. And I, we're just preparing for a Tom Hanks hour coming down the road. And Tom Hanks was at this critical juncture in his life where he just didn't want to do another movie with a dog and him yeah. being a goofball. And, and if you remember, his agent got him a script, which he took for nothing. And the movie was Philadelphia. And yeah. though he worked at, you know, scale... It changed his life, and people began to take him seriously. And I think the same with Robin Williams, who did some remarkable straight acting. And it showed people that there was more than a red ball at the end of a guy's nose. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, Twain, Twain pulled it off, too, but he eventually had a discovery he could do it through satire, you know, through really dark humor. I mean, he couldn't do it by his Joan of Arc. I mean, I don't think anyone of your listeners should bother reading it personally. But, you know, he was trying to write this high literary thing, and he didn't pull it off, but that's fine. No, and Oscar Wilde suffered the same thing. I mean, uh, no disrespect to his, his attempt at the same thing, but we remember him for the importance of being earnest. We remember yeah. him for his humor and his, and his wit and his satire. Totally. Um, yeah, Mark Twain, he, was, see, he wrote a line, something like a classic, a book that everyone buys and no one reads. Right. You know, and everyone thinks, 
well, how could he do that? Because he wrote these classics. He can't mean it. Well, at the time he wrote it, he was bitter. Because his <laughs> books were not considered classics. Right, right. Yeah. And luckily now they are. He wasn't around to really ever recognize that. Now, you've studied the man's whole life, Richard. Right. What were some of the more surprising things you found out about Mark Twain? Well, I would say, uh, you know, I didn't know how much he liked to drink, smoke, curse, and gamble. I mean, that's like the Emirates, the beyond the trifecta. What do we have when it's four things? I mean, he superfecta. Uh, that's a superfecta. Super, I gamble. Yeah. I love the races, so I know what a Quinella is. I know it all, Richard. Okay, superfecta, man. <laughs> yep. So he, 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 you know, I mean, and what I, I love all that about him. I mean, he was really one of the most flawed human beings, and that's what you know gives him all that humanity. You know that that he liked to do all those things, and then to make it even better, he married the most proper woman. You know, it's kind of like Margaret Dumont back in the Marx Brothers right. movies or something. I yeah. mean, Livy was an heiress in a provincial town of Elmira, New York, and she thought there were ways that you had it. She, she got mad at him for, like, not bowing properly to noblemen, you know? I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's this wonderful comedy that's behind the scenes. So oh. I think it may, his maxims are, and all those great one-liners are kind of like, he distilled it from his life, and that's what's kind of interesting. Well, and the last thing Mark Twain needed is to be married to someone like Mark Twain, and I think the same for his exactly. wife. Exactly. What an awful marriage that would have been. Tell me more about his business investments and his inventions. He's almost like a Ralph <laughs> Cramden type of guy. That's perfect. How did he lose all his money? <laughs> well, before we get to that, I want some of the inventions because they're just you can't make this stuff up. I mean, he, he, he invented special clamps so that toddlers couldn't kick the blankets off of their beds, bed clamps he thought he was going to make money on. He got a patent for that. He, um, he invented a history game that had um, all these, uh, you know, all the questions, who are the kings of England and all the rest of it. But he didn't take time on the board, and it used push pins. So basically it destroyed the board every time you played it, you know. He just... He was all over the map. On the other hand, he did make one invention that actually did well for him, um, the Mark Twain scrapbook. It's pretty much been forgotten, but he's the first guy to think that you could do dried strips of glue on a page and then moisten them with a sponge or a rag and then put the photograph or the card or the newspaper clipping into the scrapbook. And he patented it. And it, it would have made him a ton of money, but he picked a con man to market it for him, this guy named Dan Sloat. And uh, Sloat wound up going bankrupt like three times and not paying Twain what he was supposed to get. But uh, Twain once wrote one time, when he, after he got a royalty check, he said, my blank book makes more than my written ones. <laughs> hey, that's the thing about being a businessman. I mean, in the end, you've got to have great business instincts, pick your vendors right. And this right. may not have been Mark Twain's great talent. No, it really wasn't. And he, the trouble was he had this moonshot enthusiasm, and he had no patience for details. So he would just get so excited about some, some new invention or something that he would hear about. So the way he lost his money was basically two, two areas. Um, the page typesetter, which was, you know, he grew up as he had been a printer's devil. He'd been one of those guys that had to take those tiny bits of metal and drop them in so that the newspaper could be printed, you know, a little each letter, individual. And he just thought if anyone could automate that, it would be worth a fortune. And he was absolutely right. The trouble was there were about 30 different main guys trying to do it, and the one he picked did not win, you know. He picked uh, James Page, and he said Page, uh, Page uh, you know, he could, he could talk, a, talk a fish to t come out of water and take a walk with him, you know. He, he just... Uh, a hustler. He was a hustler, yeah. you know. And at first, uh, Twain called him the Shakespeare of mechanical invention, which was great. Twain would write for places like The Atlantic, and he would 
talk up these guys, you know. Meanwhile, he was investing in them at the same time, you know. <laughs> he did it later again. That's oh, yeah. it's a little bit of a hustle there, right, as we speak. Yeah. yeah. Set yep, the yep. scene for me surrounding then his bankruptcy, but I think we're already getting an idea of why he went bankrupt. Uh, but he, he, he went bankrupt in 1894. Right. How did he react to this, and how did the country react? Because this was a very public thing. Right. It was, it was, he had kept it a complete secret. And, the, and he, what, what bankrupt was actually his publishing company. He had he'd done a tricky thing. He had created his own publishing company, but he named it after his uh, nephew, Charles Webster. So not everyone knew that it was Mark Twain's own publishing company. So he had kind of insulated himself from any of the problems. And then in 1894, it went bankrupt. And there were headlines, Mark Twain fails, no joke. And... You know, he, it was so humiliating because he had always sold, you know, basically he was a good talker and he had sold himself as a brilliant businessman, as his own publisher, as, a, you know, the guy. And he still thought the page typesetter was going to, it wound up being Mergen Taylor's linotype. The linotype took over, but he, he still thought page might win out. So this was just so unbelievably humiliating for him. And he went to Europe. He could no longer afford to live in his own home in Hartford, which is just amazing. And rather than he had seven servants at the time, including a, a black butler, um, instead of cutting back on the servants and just living there quietly, they couldn't stand the shame and the wealthy community of doing that. So they went to Europe in 1891. And uh, they didn't they didn't move back permanently for um, for nine years. How old so, was he when this happened, Richard? Uh, he was, let's see, 1835, so he was 59, 58. He was in his late 50s. And that's tough when it happens yeah, at, at that age. He, think about it. He was, he was considered, you know, the greatest funny travel writer. He was the maker of speeches. He was, you know, he was on his way. A lot of people did take his literary stuff seriously. So, and he was just, he was very, very successful. And then this was so humiliating. And he, and he took it, you know, he tried to put a good spin on it. But there are lines in his, in his private notebooks where he just talks about hell and, 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 you know, the poor house. And he actually talks about suicide. I mean, he says that, that his wife's forbidden him. But that's how dark it got for him. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about his wife. We're going to talk about what he did uh, as it relates to all the people he owed money to and how he got himself out of this mess. It's actually a really remarkable story, Richard. And thanks for writing this. And a, a side note, uh, you know, what, what Twain was going through when he was 60... Uh, I think you're just dead right. I mean, this is that was the life expectancy of human beings right then at that time, Richard. Oh, it, was, it was just brutal to have it happen at that. I mean, at 30 or something, you know, you roll with it. And you keep, you got like, time. Sam Walton went bankrupt in his late 30s, I think. You know, yeah. the Walton stores failed, you know. But, yep. yeah, but 60, oof. Really rough. And, by the way, you know, a couple of decades later when Wall Street collapses, people just jump out of windows. I mean, this is, the I think, the number one cause of suicide for men is financial failure. Right. Uh, and, and we know this. And so when we come back, let's dig into the, the rest of the story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. Go to Amazon. Order this book now. It makes a great, great gift for a father, for a reader, for a mother, for a friend. And you'll laugh a lot. I promise. You'll laugh a lot. And then you'll want to pick up the Twain catalog. And when we come back, I'm also going to tell Richard about one of my favorite Mark Twain essays about, well, someone passing gas in front of the Queen of Elizabeth, the, uh, Queen Elizabeth. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Richard Zacks, author of Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. And when we left off, Mark Twain was staring down bankruptcy. He was old. He was 60, tired, disappointed, dead broke. What happens next, Richard? Well, he has to do something he really didn't want to do. He has to do a round-the-world lecture tour. They called it lectures, but it really was stand-up comedy And when he did it. And um, everyone thinks of Mark Twain as loving to do, you know, it's the Hal Holbrook thing, loving to do public speeches and all the rest of it. He actually uh, dreaded it. He, um, he thought that people he treated, you know, thought of him as a clown. He said, once an audience sees you stand on your head, they expect you to remain in that position. Right. And, you know, right. here he was trying to become more of a literary figure. And, you know, he's 60. He's not, you know, it's not. And he had to go and make people laugh. So here he is miserable from losing all his money. And we didn't even talk about it. He lost his wife's money. I mean, oh. I, don't, I don't know if you're married or not, but losing my wife's money, that scares me. <laughs> uh, luckily, my wife didn't have any money in her family, so I, I can never get jammed up like that, Richard. Oh, you know, that's actually really good. Lucky his, me. He, he inherited, uh, I mean, his wife inherited the equivalent of, you know, millions of dollars. She was a coal heiress, and her father died suddenly the first year of their marriage, and he moved into a mansion thanks to that. And uh, he succeeded in basically losing, <laughs> losing just about all her money. Oh, know? so he lost his money and her money. That's just uh, brutal. Whose idea was this tour, Richard? Uh, it was his idea. I mean, he, he knew that the only, back then, if you think about it, there's no radio, there's no TV, there's no Internet, obviously. There's none, there's none of those things. The way you made the biggest money was people coming to a theater. And some of the highest paid people of that era were the actors. And uh, Twain knew that he could make, uh, I mean, the highest paid were like the musicians. Um, there was, um, uh, what's his name, with all the hair, the Polish uh, piano. Blah. Anyhow, so... Um, Twain knew the biggest, you know, he charge a dollar a head, and a dollar was then uh, a day's wage to come and hear him talk. So that was the way. And, and he knew that he, he couldn't just do the United States. He, he thought that he needed to, uh, you know, do the whole British Empire, wherever they spoke English. So it was this incredibly ambitious speaking tour. Yeah, where did he go, and how long was he out there? He was out there for, um, for one year, basically, and he went to 71 different cities, he did 122 nights of performing. He would, you know, back then we forget how you travel. He was 100 nights at sea in order to, to go to all those places. He had to take, you know, a boat from the West Coast to Australia and a boat from Australia to India. And um, he, uh, he played small theaters in the United States, and then he played a lot larger ones once, once, once he left. Um, he, the, um, he got in so much trouble with the bankruptcy that he literally had to change his tour because he was liable to be sued in the state of New York. So he had to leave New York State. And he was a little worried that anywhere in the United States they might take his, his uh, lecture, his, you know, the money from the, uh, the audience, and put it towards his debts. So he was pretty eager. To, and he never said, I'm running away. But he, he wanted to get out of the U.S., and he didn't want to return until he could know that no sheriff could, could you know, take any of the money. And he was unique in his approach to to stand-up comedy, and that is he didn't just do punchlines and running jokes. I mean, he told funny stories. Right. You have one on page 182, uh, okay. the one about growing old. Share that with us, if you could, Richard. Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. He, um, he, he, it was after, it was late one night, and he was in Australia. He was in a club in Melbourne, and he mentions that, I'm, I'm going to try and do it. Here we go. Right. Um, my, my friend on the right and I were talking just now about growing old. 
I said, I thought that if I had created the human race, and then everyone laughs, you know, and someone yelled out, you did some of them. Um, <laughs> oh, I could have done it, he says back. Um, I was asked nothing about it, and I didn't suggest anything. But I thought if I had created the human race and had discovered that they were a kind of failure and had drowned them out, well, I would recognize that that was a good thing. <laughs> and then fortified by experience, I would start the thing on a different plan. I would have no more of that 99 years business from the Old Testament. I wouldn't let people grow that old. I would cut them off at 30. Because a man's youth is the thing he loves to think about. And it's the thing that he regrets. It is the one part of his life that he most thoroughly enjoys. My friend on the right suggests that we go as far as 40 years, as he doesn't want any of his 40 years rubbed out. Well, perhaps you really might go up to 40, because then you get a perspective upon youth. And that has its values. That has its charm. But, oh, dear me, I never would have created age. Age has its own value. But that is to other people, not to those who have it. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and what you're getting there is that it's the Twain genius. He's talking about something very serious. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. always, always using that wit. Uh, tell but, me this. When he was doing the tour, Richard, what, what, was, what were his intentions as related to the debts he owed? Talk well, about that and Livy's role in this as well. Sure. Um, but maybe we could just hit a little on his, his delivery style just because I think it's so unusual. Absolutely. Yeah. He, no, I mean, I didn't deliver that the way he would have because I think I, I, I couldn't and I'd put you to sleep. But he, he did it with, with um, a slow, slow voice. And he did long pauses, and he just stood there without smiling. He never smiled. Nobody ever remembers him laughing hard at anyone else's joke. He was one of those comics that never laughed at anyone else's materials. And he, put, he sometimes even put his jaw on his hand and just, just stood there. And it takes a while, but if you start reading his speeches and you read them that way, they're way funnier, yeah. but it's just... It's just really hard to do, and really, unusual. the only person I can think of is like Stephen Wright. I was just you know? about to say Stephen Wright because that was the thing you'd look at if you'd ever read those one-liners. I mean, they're okay, but right. you watch him deliver them; they're so deadpan and it's so slow. I mean, it's like paint drying slow. He said breakfast anytime, so I ordered French toast from the Renaissance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Twain, Twain's delivery really is at the heart of it. So all the people, all the critics would afterwards say, God, I loved his performance, but it's until they invent some way of recording and showing all at the same time, there'll be no, no one can ever explain why this was so great. And, and uh, we have the transcripts, a lot of the speeches, and, and that was a little bit of a challenge trying to get across. So I had to put in a lot of bits about the newspapers would actually write in where people laughed and where he paused. And that helps a lot to try and, try and get, get it uh, well, can you imagine Richard trying to explain to people through a transcript the epic hits that Rodney Dangerfield did on the Johnny Carson show on yeah. paper? I mean, it's a, it's a waste. Yeah, it is. Stand-up comedy, really. Like, I just went to a Louis C.K. at Madison Square Garden, and it was amazing. But if I saw the transcript of that, I probably would just go, what? That's funny. You that's know? what I paid for? That's yeah. what I paid for? Yeah, so that, that's a little bit of a challenge. But luckily, I had a lot of Twain's notebooks and Twain's, um, you know, he wrote a travel, travel book about this whole thing. So I had a lot of things that he meant to be read, as well as the speeches. You know. So basically, for the speeches, he took 30 of his best stories 
that he had basically been telling for the last 30 years, and he, he cherry-picked, um, you know, five to ten-minute bits. You know, one goes as long as 15 or so, but, and he would just, he would deliver six or seven of them every night, and just stand there and tell these stories, and he was so unusual. I mean, they were so kind of droll and also really smart, and they were so American. They were about buying his first horse, and they were about the jumping frog, and they were about stealing a watermelon, and they played incredibly well around the world. Well, when we come back, we'll close out this hour with Richard Zacks, and we'll talk about what ends up happening. I mean, does he pay off his debts? Uh, what happens to his psychological state? Does he end up being happy again, or at least something resembling happy? And we'll talk a little bit more of this whole idea of the man having to go out and make people laugh for a living. It's a hard living, folks, by the way. Think of the number of comedians who end up killing themselves. It's really, really staggering. You're out there alone, and you got to make people laugh no matter what mood you're in. And, well, no one takes you seriously at a certain age, at a certain time in your life. Especially a guy like Twain who was looking for status, wanted to be wealthy, and seen of as important. This had to be tough, even as he was succeeding and, well, trying to pay down those debts. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh. Richard Zacks is the author. Buy it on Amazon. It'll make a great, great gift. American Stories. We continue with Richard Zacks and his book, Chasing the Last Laugh. So Mark, Mark Twain is traveling around the world. Richard, how did people overseas take to Twain? You know, Jerry Seinfeld has written about and talked about how hard it is to take comedy from one culture to another because so much of humor has to do with cultural references and cultural knowledge. How did he do overseas? Uh, he he was a huge hit. I mean, he did tailor a little of his um, material. He wrote a poem about um, you know about Australia that was the most ridiculous poem. He he chose the um, platypus as the Australian national animal, and uh, you know he he just uh, he was just an enormous hit. I'd say ninety five percent of all the critical reviews are uh, are positive. I'd say he sold out about ninety five percent of the venues. Uh, he just. He just did incredibly well, and he was basically treated like royalty by the wealthy people and by the, the, the local artists, and uh, you know that was also really nice for him and Livy and his one daughter that went with him. He had to love that, actually. I mean, that's yeah. in the end what he was chasing was that respect, respect. and that and status. Got, absolutely, and he got... He, you know what? He was almost a bigger literary figure in the British Empire on some level than he was at home. Um, it's hard to believe, but they had... Uh, some, some British critics had just loved Huckleberry Finn and his early travel book. Uh, he wrote one that included, you know, where British travelers tended to travel in, in Germany and in Europe. And uh, it was just, it was a huge success. And, uh, but I just want to tell you about what I think what's one of the best celebrity perks any traveling, you know, performer has ever gotten. Yep. Um, they set aside 35 miles of the Darjeeling Himalayan Railroad 
and let him use it as a personal roller coaster. Get out. Yeah, yeah. And he just had a six-seater hand car, and they just going down. I mean, these were steep hills. There were four zigzags that they had to reverse the direction of the car in order to get down. The hill was so steep. They had four horizontal loops where you go loop around through tunnels. And Twain just called called it the absolute best day of the trip and one of the best days of his life. And uh, he just loved the idea of his wife and daughter sitting there. No one mentioned seatbelts. So he's sitting there in these open cars on canvas back seats that are bolted down, going down the Himalayas. You know, it was just, it was great. And by the way, at 60, this just proves his affection for risk, Richard. Totally, yeah. (laughs) That shows it. Yep. So the tour so the tour is a hit and people are wanting to know how's he doing on that debt paying thing. Right. And and he's not really saying clear out cuz he's too smart to give him a straight answer and basically what happens is he goes to London to write the book and uh rumors start swirling that um that he's he's living alone in poverty and then you know one newspaper wants to beat another and one says that Twain has died in poverty. So uh, this is when he, he has, says his famous line. They sent a reporter, and the reporter, it, the mission was send 500 words if Twain um, dying in poverty, send 1,000 words if Twain dead. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and then he said that, uh, that, let me see if I can get it right here. He said that, um, that uh, his cousin, James Ross Clemens, was ill, the report of my illness grew out of his illness. The report of my death was an exaggeration. <laughs> that's great. And, and that's the one. So anyhow, so he, he, um, he didn't pay it off from the trip. A lot of people, a lot of scholars have written that he paid it off from the trip. He basically made maybe half at most from the trip. And a lot of that was because Livy, he thought Livy had to stay in the best hotel everywhere and travel first class everywhere because she was an heiress. So he literally squandered a lot of his money by because um, back then performers paid their own expenses. Yeah. Um, and um, so then he had to write a travel book. So there he was in London, and he was, you know, actually, I mean, we didn't really have time to talk about it. He had a family tragedy, so he was in an absolutely dreadful, dark mood, and he still had to write a funny travel book. And, uh, but he did it, and um, the book sold, sold well, and that paid off the rest of his debt. And then he, 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 his other daughter got epilepsy right around this time, and so they stayed in Europe another year to try and see if they could cure her. He wanted to come home with her healthy and all his debts paid, but, but she, you know, you can't cure it like that. So yep, yep. anyhow, he comes home in October 1900 to an absolute hero's welcome. And so this story has a very happy ending. He was just acclaimed as, I mean, 1893 was basically like a depression. They called it Panic of 1893. And everyone was, I mean, I use the word hiding behind bankruptcy laws, taking advantage of bankruptcy laws, however you want to phrase it. Mark Twain did not. He paid off his debts. And I'm telling you, that was an inspiration to common Americans, to, to just to everyone. That he, he didn't do the Wall Street thing. He didn't do the high finance. He, Mark Twain, our beloved writer, paid his debts. And he came home and, and just was incredibly warmly embraced. He just had un, unlimited opportunities to speak and to write and to do, do anything he wanted. And uh, he had a, a friend, H.H. H. Rogers, who was uh, a big investor and a man at um, Standard Oil. And uh, he took, when Twain finally built a, a nest egg again, he took that nest egg for Twain and he tripled it for him just over a couple months, just because there was no such thing as insider trading in 1890. Right, 90s. right. Didn't come until 1934. So anyhow, Twain gets literary fame. He gets, he gets all the money back. You know, things go well. But was he happy? Was Twain ever happy? Eh, I don't of know. Course, you of know. course. He's a, if yeah. you're a comedy writer and you're a writer, yeah. happiness is, well, 
That's a silly term almost of art. Right. And uh, let's talk about that stop in India. Talk about Twain's adventures there. Uh, okay, Twain, it, you know, he was, he had, we hadn't really mentioned that how sick he was a lot of the trip. He was sick about uh, 4 to 30, 40 days out of this trip. He had um, terrible bronchitis, which might have had something to do with him smoking 20 cigars a day. But um, he uh, also had a, uh, these, these boils on his body. They called call them carbuncles. So he had been sick, and so when he gets to India... He's sick the first two weeks, and you just think, oh, it's just not going to be a very exciting time for him. Well, he thought India was the carnival. He just loved it. He, you know, seen the, the, the snake charmers and the, uh, the holy men on beds and nails and, you know, the women with the midriff showing. And uh, Twain absolutely loved India. And, uh, yeah, he, I mean, I don't know. Just, how, did the Indian, how did the Indians, Indian people uh, react to him? Well, that's the thing. Um, they didn't really know who he was. You know, I mean, it's a, you know, they're, they're, I think it was only like 250,000 white British, you know, soldiers and administrators basically governed the, the country. Right. Most of them recognized him. But, you know, Twain, you know, as much as he claimed to be bothered by it, he had a very unusual hairstyle. In that era, nobody wore their, their hair quite like that. Every, every reviewer comments on the hair because it was such a bushy, curly Thing, you mess. Know? It was such a mess. Such a mess, yeah. right? Right. That's who I was thinking. Paderewski was another person with you know a mess of a hair that was really popular. Um, so Twain Twain loved India, and he 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 you know went sightseeing, and you know in, in his travel book he he makes fun of um, the missionaries, uh, the Christian missionaries there. He said they've had no luck converting the Hindus, but they've converted four monkeys with 11 more hopefully interested. <laughs> that's, that's tough. That is tough. Yeah. And that's the thing. He pulled no punches, and, and nobody back then was doing what he was doing. Were they, Richard? No, not really. He, he, he pushed it, and then he really pushed it with his you know, satire later, and Livy didn't want him to publish a lot of it, but that's who she was, and you know, he, he, he did wind up you know, eventually, especially after she passed in 1904, you know, more of it came out. Now, he got settled finally. He's back in the United States. His dear friend, who's a, a, a real great businessman and investor, makes a lot more money from him. Does Twain learn, or does he gamble again? What happens before this all ends? Oh, man. So Twain gets back. He's now wealthy again, and uh, he can afford to live at home, buys another house. Um, and, uh, of course, he invests again, and he gambles again. And um, he invests in a thing called Plasmon, which is a, a protein powder that's made from, you know, leftover dairy products. And uh, he loses, like, $30,000 on that. And, uh, which was real money back then. Yeah, 30 times 30. That's basically a million. Yep. So a guy who's finally gotten himself back in order again. I mean, his whole estate, when he, when he passed, is... Depending on how you value the books, you could value it as low as two hundred thousand. So to lose thirty thousand is a lot of money. You bet. Uh, uh, yeah. So he still he he can't get over the book. And and H H Rogers, his his investor friend, tried really hard to get him to stop stop investing. You know, at one point Twain Twain wrote him, "I've landed a big fish today." He found somebody that could um, duplicate uh, designs for uh, clothing with some kind of you know early photocopy right. type machine, and he wanted to just sink everything into that i mean he was he's a little out of control yeah well, and again i as i as i heard about this story and started poking around i just kept thinking of ralph cramden in the sense that ralph represented <laughs> in the honeymooners that every man who always had some big idea and his poor wife had to deal with it and none of them ever panned out right 
Well, I, I, uh, when, when my wife and I got married, um, I actually quoted from the Honeymooners in the wedding vows. I said, he was, uh, Ralph had some future advice for his brother-in-law, Stanley. He said, he said, Stanley, when Agnes says I do, that's the last decision you allow her to make. <laughs> I'm the king of my castle. Yeah, Remember that? I'm the king of my castle. My father-in-law comes up, future father-in-law comes up to me and shakes my hand and says, uh, you don't think you're going to get away with that stuff with my daughter, do you? <laughs> I said, no, sir. She gave me permission to say it. <laughs> oh, you can't beat it. Well, Richard, thanks so much for doing this, and what a great project. What a great read, Chasing the Last Laugh. And, folks, go to Amazon.com and get it. It's Chasing the Last Laugh. Again, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. The writer, Richard Zacks, and the writer he's writing about, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, American fiction writer and the funniest, Mark Twain. This is Our American Stories. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Hey, thanks a lot. You bet. And you can get all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done hours on everybody from Frank Sinatra to Amart Ertegen, and not many folks can say they do that kind of thing. Take it out with some great... American music. <laughs> 